Hey, Nick, we have some exciting news to announce regarding um, our friends over at the OBG Project. The OBG Project folks have now put all of OBG First within the OBG Resident Core. So you get OBG First for your entire OBGYN residency. How incredible is that, Faye? Yeah, that sounds really great. And just to remind you guys, the resident core over at the OBG Project is completely free. All you have to do is sign up and prove that you're a resident. And then you'll get not only OBG First, but also the OBG L&D ebook, as well as excellent curricula, as you know, as well as self-test quizzes and things like that for your studying. Yeah, that's over a $198 per year value. So if you are interested in getting this free educational resource, head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, get signed up for the OBG Resident Core, and by extension, OBG First, the OBG L&D ebook, all of this awesome stuff, absolutely free, four years of residency. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. So today we have with us back again, Dr. David Abel to talk to us um, about another hematology subject in pregnancy. Um, as a reminder, Dr. Abel is an assistant professor in the department of OBGYN in the division of maternal fetal medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. So welcome back, Dr. Abel. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's super exciting to have you back, Dr. Abel, um, this time to talk about sickle cell disease in pregnancy. So what are our learning objectives today? Well, first, I thought that we would review the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease and learn to appreciate both the adverse maternal and fetal effects of sickle cell disease during pregnancy. Also, uh, important for us to understand how to manage sickle cell disease during pregnancy, particularly understand how to recognize acute chest syndrome. So we'll cover all of those. Awesome. So let's go ahead and get started right off the bat. Um, so first things first, let's talk a little bit about the epidemiology um, of sickle cell disease. Yeah. So, so sickle cell disease is a single gene disorder that is the most common inherited hemoglobinopathy in the United States, and in fact, is the most common inherited disease worldwide. It's inherited, as most of you know, in an autosomal recessive fashion, thus both parents need to be carriers. To appreciate just how how big the scope of this disease is, sickle cell disease affects about 10 million people worldwide and about 100,000 people in the United States. This translates into a prevalence of about one in 375 who have the disease. And as most of you know, it predominantly affects people of African ancestry. And two thirds of those who are affected reside in West Africa. In fact, one half of children born with sickle cell disease are born in Nigeria. Now, with regards to the sickle cell trait, about one in 12 are carriers. In the United States, about 3 million individuals carry the sickle cell trait, which constitutes about 7 to 9% of the African-American population. This gene is widely distributed, so other populations may be affected, including those residing in areas of the Mediterranean, Caribbean, South and Central America, as well as East India. Although sickle cell disease is associated with major morbidity, more than 90% of children with sickle cell disease in the United States survive into adulthood. Now, compared to the general population, however, their lifespans are two to three decades shorter and limited by both acute and chronic morbidity. 
You may remember learning in medical school or maybe even biology class in college that sickle cell trait confers a survival advantage in malaria endemic regions such as in sub-Saharan Africa, where almost 80% of individuals with sickle cell anemia live and where most plasmodium falciparum cases and deaths occur. So the mutation that results in sickle cell trait has been positively selected, if you will, during human evolution. Thank you, Dr. Abel. Now, I wanted to think a little bit about our last episode where we talked about thalassemias. And in that episode, we took a deep dive into the structure of hemoglobin, those associated globin chains, and talking about how thalassemia was a quantitative defect of those hemoglobin chains. Let's talk about how kind of some of that structure relates to sickle cell disease and how the alterations specifically with sickle cell explain the pathophysiology. Yes. So, you know, in contrast, as you said, Nick, to the thalassemias, which represent a quantitative defect in the synthesis of one or more of the globin chain subunits of that hemoglobin tetramer, like we talked about in the last episode, hemoglobin S is characterized by a qualitative defect of the beta globin gene. Now, specifically, and again, taking you back to biochemistry, um, hemoglobin S results from a single nucleotide substitution, hence single you know, gene disorder, and adenine to thymine substitution in the sixth codon of the beta globin polypeptide, which replaces glutamic acid with valine. So from this one amino acid chains, rather than forming tetramers under conditions of low oxygen tension, this hemoglobin S forms polymers, which are essentially these long and flexible chains or fibers, if you will. And these molecules crystallize into these long fibrous polymers and they distort the red blood cell membrane, resulting in this sickle shape. These distorted red blood cells are destroyed by the reticuloendothelial system, resulting in a moderate to severe anemia. Compared to the normal lifespan of a red blood cell of about 120 days, the lifespan of these sickled red blood cells is reduced to an average of about 15 days. Okay, so moving on, these distorted red blood cells clog up the microvasculature, leading to essentially a log jam that can result in obstruction and local ischemia, which clinically manifests as a vaso-occlusive crisis. Now, repeated vaso-occlusive crisis can lead to interruption of normal perfusion of multiple organs, including the spleen, lungs, kidneys, heart, and brain. Adults with sickle cell disease are essentially functionally asplenic, where they have undergone autosplenectomy by adolescence. Absence of the spleen contributes to the increased incidence and severity of infection in patients with sickle cell disease. I think it's also important to note that not only do these sickled red blood cells clog blood vessels, they are also prone to lysis. And why is that important? When uh, these red blood cells lyse, they release free hemoglobin. And this free hemoglobin damages the endothelium and may also lead to thrombosis. Importantly, the free hemoglobin consumes nitric oxide, an important vasodilator, and thus can lead to an exacerbation of the ischemia. So the intravascular congestion, ischemia, and thrombosis can all result in both acute and chronic tissue damage. Um, that is some great information, Dr. Abel. So I know you know we want to get into this you know maternal and fetal complications of sickle cell, but before we do that, let's talk about you know you see a patient in your office who should be offered testing for sickle cell. How do we figure out if they have sickle cell or not? 
Yeah, Faith. So, you know, recall in our last episode discussing the thalassemias, patients with a mean corpuscular volume, MCV, less than 80, would be candidates for a hemoglobin evaluation, which is also a called a hemoglobin electrophoresis, although iron deficiency may also be present, and thus a serum ferritin should also be performed. In patients of African ancestry, I think it is reasonable to perform a hemoglobin electrophoresis right off the bat along with the CBC with testing of the partner if appropriate. In patients with sickle cell anemia, i.e. the SS genotype, the hemoglobin electrophoresis will reveal the majority of hemoglobin, about 85 to 95% is hemoglobin S, with the remaining mostly hemoglobin F and a little hemoglobin A2. Now, in the case of sickle cell trait, there is usually at least 50 to 60% of the normal hemoglobin, hemoglobin A, and 35 to 45% is hemoglobin S, with a small amount, again, of hemoglobin F and hemoglobin A2. Keep in mind that the rate of that hemoglobin polymerization that we talked about is highly dependent on the amount of hemoglobin S. So it makes sense that this is why the phenotype of sickle cell trait is much less severe than that of the disease. The amount of hemoglobin S present is much less. Now, there are many other sickle genotypes. Uh, this includes homozygous hemoglobin SS, which is what we are primarily talking about, which constitutes about 70% of these genotypes. Hemoglobin C, which differs from hemoglobin S only in that the amino acid lysine instead of valine replaces glutamic acid in the beta globin gene can exist in combination with hemoglobin S, and this is called hemoglobin SC disease. Hemoglobin S may also coexist with beta thalassemia. Hemoglobin S beta thalassemia zero is also identified as sickle cell anemia and is usually just as severe as hemoglobin SS. Hemoglobin S beta thalassemia plus is not as severe as there is some hemoglobin A that is preserved. I want to come now into the clinical consequences of this. No, you mentioned that log jam effect in the microvasculature leading to potentially severe maternal and fetal complications. Can you review some of those, um, what we should be thinking about in the pregnancy perspective? Yeah, so as we discussed, several organ systems are affected by sickle cell disease. Maternal complications are both acute and chronic. Now remember during pregnancy, the increase in red blood cell mass that normally occurs does not in those with sickle cell anemia. But during pregnancy, anywhere from 50 to 70% of women with sickle cell disease require at least one hospitalization and 30 to 40% will require a transfusion. In the United States, the maternal mortality rate is approximately 10 times higher than it is for women without sickle cell disease. One of the primary acute issues facing patients with sickle cell disease is a vasoocclusive or pain crisis, which is the most common cause of recurrent morbidity. This crisis may be precipitated by such factors as colds, uh, physical exertion, uh, dehydration, and stress. A pain crisis that is encountered in the third trimester can have a prolonged course and not resolve until postpartum. Opioids are a mainstay of treatment for a pain crisis, and despite the current climate regarding the use of opioids, I think it's really important not to withhold treatment for these patients. Now, acute chest syndrome you'll hear about, and this is a severe life-threatening form of a vasoclusive crisis that presents similar to pneumonia. Acute chest syndrome signs and symptoms include fever, tachypnea, chest pain, hypoxia, and infiltrates noted on chest x-ray. 
In addition to infectious agents, sometimes acute chest syndrome may also result from fat emboli or intrapulmonary aggregates of sickle blood cells, atelectasis, or pulmonary edema. It is the opinion of many experts that a patient with a history of frequent hospitalizations and or episodes of acute chest syndrome correlates with increased risk during pregnancy. The treatment of acute chest syndrome typically consists of antibiotics, usually cetriaxone and azithromycin, pain control, and if needed, oxygen and transfusion. So it's really important for us to keep uh, on the lookout for acute chest syndrome. Other complications include stroke, which occurs in almost 25% by the age of 25, and splenic sequestration, where patients are functionally asplenic, as we mentioned earlier, in addition to acute renal failure, acute cholecystitis, and pulmonary hypertension. Pulmonary hypertension occurs in about 6 to 11% of patients with sickle cell disease and can result in significant morbidity during pregnancy to the alterations in cardiovascular physiology. I do want to talk a little bit about venous thromboembolism. Uh, this occurs in about 10 to 25% of those with sickle cell disease by the age of 40 and occurs with increased frequency during pregnancy, which is not surprising due to pregnancy's hypercoagulable state. Specifically, this includes a two-fold increased risk of stroke and almost five-fold increased risk of cerebral vein thrombosis an almost two-fold increased risk of pulmonary embolism, and a 2.5-fold increased risk of deep vein thrombosis. An increased risk of maternal infection complications may also occur, including asymptomatic bacteria, polynephritis, sepsis, and an almost 10-fold increased risk of pneumonia. It's also important to remember that the placenta is an organ that could definitely be affected by sickle cell disease, and the main contributor to adverse pregnancy outcomes it's thought to be placental hypoperfusion with endothelial damage. This includes an increased risk of preeclampsia and eclampsia, placental abruption, antepartum bleeding, and alloimmunization. And this alloimmunization is usually a consequence of long-term transfusion therapy. Interestingly, there may actually be a decreased risk of postpartum hemorrhage. Now, in terms of fetal consequences of sickle cell disease, this includes a two-fold increased risk of preterm birth, a threefold risk of small gestational age, and a fourfold increased risk of stillbirth. Considering these potential consequences, both serial fetal growth assessments and antepartum testing are employed. Now, keep in mind the possible increased risk of neonatal abstinence syndrome due to the use of opioids to treat pain crisis. Thank you so much for that. Um, so Dr. Abel, you mentioned that many of these patients are going to need transfusions during their pregnancy to help them avoid crises. Now, is there a role for prophylactic transfusions? I think that's a really good question. And I think the data here is somewhat conflicting. Uh, there was a meta-analysis in 2015 of 12 observational studies with almost 1,300 patients that demonstrated a reduction in both maternal and perinatal mortality, as well as a reduction in pain events and preterm birth. However, in 2016, a Cochrane review that included only randomized controlled trials did not demonstrate a benefit with prophylactic when compared with selective transfusion. Complete blood counts should be checked frequently with a goal of maintaining a hemoglobin around 10, some people even say around 12, and a percentage of hemoglobin S less than 35 to 40% is reasonable. Keep in mind that it is important to avoid iron overload when considering transfusion therapy. Interesting. And I think, you know, another mainstay of treatment that you mentioned um, were opioids. 
Now, I'll say in my own experience working with patients with uh, sickle cell disease, um, no, there are some folks who really are hesitant to use opioids in pregnancy, whether they are opioid naive or uh, habituated or on opioids already. So what other treatment options exist during pregnancy to discuss with patients? Managing the acute and chronic pain of sickle cell disease, Nick, can be really challenging. In addition to opioids, other medications such as amitriptyline, gabapentin, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRIs, and complementary therapies have also been helpful. Hydroxyurea is a mainstay of treatment in the non-pregnant patient as it reduces the risk of a vaso-occlusive crisis and acute chest syndrome, thereby leading to improved survival and quality of life. Patients with sickle cell disease who have higher amounts of fetal hemoglobin tend to do better, and hydroxyurea increases fetal hemoglobin as well as reduces red blood cell adhesion and increases nitric oxide, that vasodilator that we discussed earlier. However, since hydroxyurea is an anti-metabolite and has been found to cause birth defects in animals, although it has not been found to increase the risk of birth defects in humans, generally we avoid it during pregnancy. So thank you for all that information, Dr. Abel. Um, You know, one of the things that we get as MFMs, of course, is preconception counseling for high-risk patients. So how would you counsel or what recommendations would you have for patients who have sickle cell disease who want to become pregnant? Yeah, that's a really good point, Faye. Uh, I would definitely encourage providers who take care of women of reproductive age with sickle cell disease. Uh, I would encourage preconception counseling because it really could serve to optimize pregnancy outcomes. I would discuss the increased risk of both maternal and fetal complications, but I would certainly stress that many can have a successful pregnancy. A thorough history is important, including the past need for transfusions, the frequency of hospitalizations due to vaso-occlusive crisis, and if there is a history of acute chest syndrome. Now, due to the possibility of iron overload due to multiple transfusions, it is important to check a ferritin prior to prescribing iron. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommend four milligrams of folic acid daily. It's also important to screen for hypertension and treat if warranted to maintain a blood pressure less than 140 over 90. A dilated eye exam performed by an ophthalmologist should be performed if not done within the past year. And if there are any concerns for nephropathy, certainly nephrology referral is warranted. And if there are any concerns for pulmonary hypertension, an echocardiogram is recommended with cardiology referral if needed. As we discussed that most patients are functionally asplenic, Pneumococcus, haemophilus influenza type B, and then meningococcus immunizations are recommended. Make sure the antibody screen is negative due to the possible risk of alloimmunization and perform a genotype on the partner if necessary. Finally, if the patient is on an antihypertensive that is contraindicated during pregnancy, such as an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, this should be discontinued prior to conception. All right. And I'm going to ask you a tougher question, Dr. Abel, or maybe one that we think about towards the future. Um, But is there a cure for sickle cell disease? That's a great question. Cures of sickle cell disease, Nick, have actually been accomplished with hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. In this case, the donor may be related or unrelated. Stem cell transplantation offers a cure, but can result in death, graft rejection, graft-versus-host disease, and sterility as the recipient receives chemotherapy or radiation in preparation for the transplant. 
gene therapy for sickle cell disease where patients receive their own genetically modified hematopoietic stem cells is still experimental and there are several clinical trials underway. So watch out for that. So I think, you know, the last thing that I wanted to ask, of course, is how do we manage sickle cell disease in pregnancy and what are the important or salient points here? Well, first, if the patient is taking hydroxyurea, this should be discontinued if it has not been already. Now, there are some who might consider restarting this after the fetal anatomical survey shows no evidence of abnormalities. Any chelation agent should also be discontinued. Uh, I would recommend low-dose aspirin for preeclampsia risk reduction. And I usually perform monthly urine cultures monitoring for asymptomatic bacteria and watching for any signs or symptoms of pyelonephritis. Some may perform urine cultures less frequently, and I think that's also reasonable. Frequent CBC monitoring, usually monthly, is reasonable. Interval fetal growth assessments are important, of course, every three to four weeks usually. Some might start at 24 weeks and others a bit later, say at 28 weeks. Assuming no other concerns, antepartum testing starting at 32 weeks is indicated with a delivery goal of 37 to 39 weeks. Of course, watching for preeclampsia is very important. If a cesarean delivery is required, a preoperative transfusion may be prudent to increase hemoglobin levels to 8 to 10 grams per deciliter. Now, with regards to thromboprophylaxis, pneumatic compression devices should be placed during any hospitalization, and particularly after cesarean delivery. Now, the use of anticoagulation should be individualized. Assuming the patient did not have a thromboembolic event during the pregnancy, I would consider prophylactic low molecular weight heparin for six weeks postpartum. Finally, for those patients who require narcotics on a regular basis, the pediatrician should be notified as there is a risk of neonatal abstinence. I would like to conclude with a brief discussion about sickle cell trait since we are more likely to encounter a patient with the trait than the actual disease. The hemoglobin here is AS, and there's some debate regarding the risks of sickle cell trait during pregnancy. Always remember in a patient with the trait that the partner should be tested as the fetus, of course, has a 25% chance of having the disease. There does appear in patients with sickle cell trait during pregnancy that these patients are at increased risk of urinary tract infections and pyelonephritis. Thus, periodic urine cultures are typically performed. All right, well, Dr. Abel, thanks again for coming on the podcast and sharing with us your vast knowledge of these hematologic diseases and sickle cell in particular today. Um, I understand you had a couple of folks who you wanted to thank with the, with the podcast prep today. Yes, uh, and thank you again for the opportunity to make a repeat visit here. I really enjoy doing this, and I would like to thank two of my OB residents, uh, Drs. Nikki Fenimore and O.C. Mabutu for proofreading the script for this episode. So thanks to both of them. Well, awesome. And thank you again, Dr. Abel, for coming back onto the podcast. Um, so I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you love the show, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoffee one on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. You can also donate to the show at our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode, as well as all of our previous episodes going through all of those different hemoglobinopathies, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, www.creogsOverCoffee.com. 
And if you have a question for us, if you have uh, recommendations for a new episode or a correction, or just want to say hi or also ask Dr. Abel a question, go ahead and email us at creogsrivercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>